Welcome to The Voice of Retail for the week of April 1st, 2019. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, and this podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada and sponsored by Stream Commerce, North America's fastest-growing Shopify Plus agency. Learn more at streamcommerce.com. In this episode, an exclusive interview with Peter Housley, Chief Revenue Officer for Vancouver-based Indochino, talking about performance marketing, the simple genius of the showroom, and managing a team through hyper-growth cycle. Next, part two of my interview with e-commerce merchandising veteran Lauren Friedman, president of the e-tailing group. But that's not all. On my whirlwind trip to Vancouver this week, I had the opportunity to grab lunch at Nordstrom's with Andrew Cherwenka, digital and e-commerce strategy and usability guru on his new adventures and insights in the Western Canadian market. Last but not least, I'll cover off the top retail news of the week, including Ontario Cannabis Store openings, Oxford Properties launch of their new food concept in Mississauga, IKEA reinvents itself, Hudson's Bay results... RH goes big at home, and Loblaws pilots an innovative new digital strategy. But first, let's listen now to my interview with Peter from Indochino. Peter, welcome to The Voice of Retail. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here, Mike. It was uh, great to catch up in Vancouver uh, recently. As a, as a friend of mine said, peak bragging days in Vancouver with the weather being so nice and you know no rain and so kind of crappy in Toronto. So it was uh, such a treat both to enjoy the weather and, and to uh, catch up and enjoy your company. Well, it's hard to believe we were actually both, you know, digital pioneers 20 plus years ago uh, with the advent of e-com first hitting retail many moons ago. And of course, it's just evolved a thousandfold subsequent to that time. But uh, it was great to see you. Well, there's no question. There's lots of catching up to do. So as, as you said, we've known each other for, for quite a while, going back to Hudson's Bay. But why don't you tell us, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and then your role at uh, Indochino. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a marketer by trade. Uh, I spent my first career years uh, learning the tools of the trade of Procter & Gamble, and I think I was kind of trained but not molded by that environment. And I was always super excited by ideas. So the advertising ideas or the brand ideas. With that in mind, I spent a number of years uh, in the agency world, uh, working on some pretty prestigious brands, uh, Pepsi, Nissan, uh, and really sort of honed uh, my idea of brand and, you know, how to accelerate brands. Hmm. And there I actually really got excited about retail. Um, I liked fashion. I liked the tactile nature of retail. Uh, and I liked the pace. And for those of you that work in retail, we work on a 52-week uh, calendar, and uh, there's never a dull moment. So uh, with that in mind, I was uh, VP of Marketing of Eaton's, and then after that, uh, worked for Hudson's Bay and was uh, VP of Marketing there. And that was really uh, a wonderful chapter. Uh, and then after that stint, I actually, uh, you know, did a few things. I ran a uh, one of the first uh, internet dating companies. Uh, we were called Lava Life. That's right. I forgot about we that. We were uh, <laughs> number one in Canada, number one in New York City, and top ten in the world. And we pulled that business right out of thin air. Literally, uh, anyone who showed up, you know, circa 1999 with a uh, internet dating. Uh, company and some advertising dough to prime the pump uh, was pretty good. So that was, that was really a great experience for me to, you know, learn digital. And in those days we called, you know, at the wild, wild web uh, and PPC and paid advertising looked very, very different from it, you know, how it did today. Uh, and then after that, I was president of Milestones Restaurants. Uh, and here I am at Indochino, uh, Indochino, we are the global leader in made-to-measure suits. Uh, Omnichannel, we have approximately 40 showrooms uh, in North America. We ship to 140 countries around the world. And I think what's super interesting about Indochino uh, is that it combines retail and fashion and a lot of digital. So really, uh, for me, this was just a wonderful home. Uh, and it's really exciting to work on such a fast growing brand. We've been growing, you know, the last six or seven years at uh, 50% annual compound growth. So big success story here. Now you're, you're chief revenue officer at Indochino, right? So you're, you're charged with basically understanding the, the brand and marketing and, and the sales. How do you keep uh, a team 
moving forward and focused when you're, you know, on the first 40 stores, not the next 20, like not the bright, shiny object. It must be so tempting because it's exciting, right? It's exciting to open new stores, but you got to remember the first store uh, and maybe some stores that need to help. I, how do you, how do you deal well, with that? I mean, that, that's a great question. I think, you know, first of all, is that, you know, sort of the ethos of our company, we are very KPI and very data driven. So the targets and the KPIs, whether they be new and repeat customers or average order value or cost per acquisition, all of those are very, you know, very specific uh, right down to the market and to the showroom level. So I think, you know, the first part of your question was, you know, how do you keep focused on 40 legacy stores? Um, You know, we've got a very scientific approach to marketing, uh, which goes, you know, there's a lot of top of funnel activity we do with public relations and podcasts and influencers. We have a very sophisticated mid-funnel activity uh, with our digital marketing uh, and, you know, and email marketing and then uh, fairly aggressive sales tactics, which would drive lower conversion uh, funnel activity. In terms of, you know, how do we open 20 new showrooms in a, in a year? It really is what I call ops in a box. So we've got a very specific formula for how to take online uh, customers in an existing, uh, you know, online market, activate them in a showroom, turn on, you know, the core elements of paid media, starting with paid search and, you know, paid social, uh, get some local influencers uh, and then some local media buys, you know, and so on. And, And of course I think, you know, one of the beauties, uh, beautiful things about opening new showrooms is that just by virtue of having your banner in the marketplace, so your storefront uh, provides a whole new uh, level of awareness. And as we open new stores, we're about 50% of them standalone uh, street locations and the other 50 uh, in malls. And they both do a very, very good job at building uh, hyper-local brand awareness. You know, you mentioned that that presence in malls. I think that's what what took the industry by surprise the most. Um, you, you really, I got to give lots of credit to Indochino for seeing that showroom model first and foremost. And I think, you know, that lo- whether it's lowering the cost of customer a- acquisition, you know, which place in the funnel it was playing. But really, you know, when you started booking leases in malls. I think you're, you know, as a brand, you really turned heads because it was such a different approach. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting because it's based in, in your, you know, top mid and bottom end of the funnel, right? So you're working all elements backwards and, and, and forwards. Cause just for the, for the folks not entirely familiar with Indochino, you don't, you don't actually sell merchandise in, in most of your showrooms. Do you sell maybe some accessories, but mostly people are coming there to experience the product, get fit, uh, get fitted and and size it on. Yeah, Is that right? So maybe we'll just talk a little bit about Indochino. Uh, so we make made to measure uh, suits and shirts and casual pants and casual shirts. And all of our products are 100% custom, meaning you choose your fabrics and your customizations, your collars, your cuffs, your linings, uh, your monograms. So Every one of our gentlemen customers gets a fully unique garment made just for them. And uh, we were a digital pure play. Uh, the company is now uh, 12 years old. Going back about five years ago, we started to get into bricks and mortar, uh, giving uh, our gentlemen a more tactile experience where they could touch fabrics and then have the advice of a style guide to help coordinate you know, a look that would work for them. So the retail model as it evolved, um, you know, has really been a wonderful acquisition tool for us. Um, to your point, um, the model is really a new age omni retail model in that we don't carry any inventory. So essentially, you know, we go into a store and we have some sample fabric panels. And so really the only cost of doing business would be uh, the cost of rent and the cost of our showroom team. You know, with that in mind, the retail uh, model is extremely uh, cash flow positive uh, right out of the gate. Let's talk about uh, lessons learned, the, the modern marketer's toolkit. You, you mentioned a couple of things earlier on that, that weren't really around or they were kind of around the influencer marketing, for example, and, and performance marketing has changed. As you said, 
so dramatically in, in the decades. I remember when you and I were first launching HBC.com, there wasn't even, you couldn't even buy Google AdWords. It was, <laughs> it was so early. But in, in the last couple of years, and, and I guess maybe even in the last 12 months, um, what, what are the things you're finding the, the most effective as you work up and down that or within that, uh, those elements of the funnel? It sounds like you've got a very scalable model, first of all. Um, so what have, what have, what's, what's uh, jumped out at you as, a, as an interesting learning in, this, uh, in the last bit in yeah, terms of your I mean, journey? You know, if I take a, a step higher than that, modern you know, trade of marketing and advertising has evolved from brand thinking and you know, amazing content towards data, data, data. The attribution and how you're tying back the you know the marketing channel performance, whether it be science on the customer journeys and the different personas, you know, and kind of what those journeys are looking like to get conversion, um, you know, detailed you know diagnostics on you know repeat behavior and lifetime value, and so the modern tools today allow us to make decisions so much more differently than we would in the past. And everything is data-driven. You know, even in the last year, things are changing so quickly that it's hard to keep up. So, you know, years ago, there was no AdWords, as you said. Then we were buying, you know, AdWords, and then we were buying on Facebook platforms. And then we started to have, you know, demand-side platforms and data management platforms to be able to deal with topics like, you know, frequency caps and suppression of existing, you know, buyers, um, you know, and then today we see that in the DMP world, uh, there are privacy laws uh, coming everywhere and browsers that don't allow retargeting. So really navigating the digital trends, staying current, leveraging the latest data and attribution tools available becomes a very sort of data-specific role. And to me, that's really been exciting uh, to sort of witness. Well, you've really come, I wouldn't say full circle, because it's not an accurate representation. You've, you've built like a Tetris game, a, a, a skill set that started at very brand-focused into retail and now yeah. data, and they're, they're kind of cumulative, right? They're, you really reflect the, the evolution of marketing, I think. So, in the last kind of couple of questions, I'm really curious about what tips you might have for retailers who are maybe beginning, if not beginning the journey of being data centric in their marketing platforms. But, you know, you've gone through, as you, as you alluded to, you know, you're, you're always looking at new tools. There's a tyranny of choice out there. There's a million things you can do. And you could probably spend a full-time job just looking at new tools and taking people's at requests to do proof of concepts. So what tips do you have for retailers out there who are maybe not as advanced in this journey as, well, as Indochino? Well, that's a, a well-phrased question. I mean, I think all of us as curious, you know, marketers and leaders and business people want to stay current. And so we always want to continue to do research. An interesting tip might be the vendors themselves are so knowledgeable and have so much to share. Hmm. So, you know, if you have reps at the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world and the Salesforce.coms of the world and the Adobe analytics and so on. It's amazing how much time and attention and thought leadership they can help to craft strategy. Secondly, I think, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about data, you really do need to know, you know, your numbers, you know, in marketing. So, you know, how much am I spending on marketing? What is my cost per new customer? What is it costing me for a repeat customer? You know, what is their lifetime value? Those simple metrics have not changed in the world of direct response advertising probably for 100 years. Those are all principles That's right. that anyone who had any kind of a direct marketer would, would intuitively know. So, you know, in order to make your marketing profitable, you want to assume you're acquiring a customer for less than the lifetime value, you know, at gross margin that you're making. And so as long as your acquisition cost is well below your gross margin of your customer, then you really can scale it infinitely. Maybe just sort of more of a, a, a personal, you know, philosophy or a tip. I would say as a marketer, 
be brave, uh, you know, take risks mm. and fail fast and recognize that there are a number of tests that you're going to do, you know, in business, in a lifetime, you know, even in a, in a single job. And if you don't take risks, uh, you won't succeed. And if, you know, if you don't fail, you know, at some things, you also aren't taking enough risk. Uh, you know, I've always been a little bit of a cowboy uh, in marketing. Um, you know, I've made a few uh, mistakes, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think I would change anything. Last um, question. You, you mentioned the, uh, the resources that are out there from, from vendors. Uh, I've got, you know, we have vendors of all sizes that uh, listen to the, the voice of retail. What tip would you give to a small vendor who wants to get your attention? They've got an innovative product, or at least they think they do. What, how, do they approach, uh, how do they approach you? How do they approach Indochino and say, hey, I've got something I think that, that is different. What's or advice would you give a, a small vendor who, who wants to get noticed and, and thinks well, they have a solution for you? Well, know, let me start you. with sort of a recap of the pet peeve. So there are so <laughs> many startups that put a shingle on their door for, oh, we're a digital analytics, we're a paid search company, we are a marketing automation company, you know, we're a new, you know, Facebook implementer, you know, Facebook marketing partner. And what I find is I probably get 20 or 30 cold call emails a day to say, uh, hey, Peter, uh, we've looked under your hood. We see you're, you know, the chief marketing officer, the chief revenue officer in the Chino. Uh, looks to us like your AdWords are configured completely in- incorrectly, so we can help. How about we uh, hop on a call next Thursday? So many of these calls where I don't know them, they don't know me, they don't know what problems I'm even trying to solve. I don't even know how to respond to them. Very often I ignore them, but I try to be polite and get back to most of my emails. So, I mean, the answer to your question is, I think there are, you know, a number of trade shows where, you know, startups can actually pitch uh, their services. But, you know, really, Michael, and I think probably, you know, you and I have both been in sort of biz dev roles, you know, over our careers, it really starts with relationships, right? So, you know, you've just got to make relationships with former colleagues and clients, and you've got to start understanding what needs a business had. And then hopefully, you you know, you can make a, you know, a relationship and find, you know, an unmet need for a potential client, but it's not easy. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this chat. And, you know, if, if I can speak on behalf of the industry, it's great to have you back. I mean, we lost you for a while, so to speak, when you went to the milestones and when you went into uh, to other ventures. So it's great, so great to have you back in the retail industry. You know, we love as an industry to keep great people and hold on to them, and uh, and you're a testament to that. So thank you, I guess, uh, on behalf of the industry for for being part of it and and really for taking the time to. Uh, to chat with us today and i wish you uh, all the best and success we'll check in with you later in the year i'd love to hear how things progress and i look forward to uh catching up with you in person Wonderful, and uh, thanks very in much for the kind words and uh we will uh look forward to dominating uh the menswear industry going forward all right let's jump right into the second half of my interview with lauren friedman we we start talking uh, here about uh research from weissplum that talks about the the difference of satisfaction between consumers' digital experience and in-store experience. Let's talk about that 46% number. That kind of jumps out at us as, you know, the, the expectations. And we, I want to ask you in the context of when you talk to merchants, how, you know, you guide them or give them some advice. Because clearly um, half the people or more than half the people are not entirely happy with the fact that they have this wonderful web experience, you know, they're ranking in an eight and a half or a nine or in terms of mobile at 10, but then they get to the store and it, it seems like they're having a not dissimilar experience that they had 20 years ago. Is this, is this the, the main fulcrum point now where you would advise merchants and retailers to, to put their emphasis and in investment of time and treasure? Um, I think that the store based piece is very interesting. Um, I think it depends. First of all, it depends on who you are, you know, and what, you know, what level of store and real estate that you currently hold. I thought it was interesting in the Canadian research that it didn't seem to have as much traction for buy online, pick up in store. Like the numbers that I'm mm. seeing on our end, 
for a lot of people are like 40 to 50% of the orders are picked up in store and yours were like much, much lower. So it seems to me like the opportunities at retail, of course, they're always about the people, but then that harkens me back to, Oh my God, a hundred years ago when I remember, Mm. I think I was at the May company and I remember the CEO saying something like, well, you know, we, we pay these people, it wasn't $5 an hour, but, you know, in effect, we pay people $10 an hour, they work here for four months, and then we're supposed to train them in all this technology. So I think part of the challenges is the training, the culture of the experience, um, also the use of technology smartly within the store. So if you're in an environment where people have mobile POS, but they don't deploy it, versus say you might be in a Sephora and, you know, they pull it out and you're efficiently in and out of the store, you know, curbside pickup. So there's all these kinds of things that I think are opportunistic. And it seems like what's happening is that, and this kind of answers some of your other questions too, is that you have sort of this haves and have nots where you have these large companies who are really making huge investments like the Walmarts, the Targets, the Home Depots into technology, even Best Buy, you know, and so you've got those people being very aggressive and it seems like then you have a lot of the other stores who are falling behind and, you know, every day is a new bankruptcy, it seems like. So... I think it's important that we kind of look at these experiences and try to make them consistent, but also not just making them consistent, but making them opportunistic for the channel, like doing what the store does well and really giving people an experience and a reason to show up. Um, And I think that's going to be critical to keep a lot of these stores, you know, going in the right direction. such an interesting point, and I want to get back to the BOPIS, the buy online, pick up and store numbers, the growth numbers. But I, I was reflecting when you were t- talking about experience I had when I was in um, I was in New York City and visited the Macy's store on 34th, and they had we were there looking at the beta and the marketplace, and then noticed the sign for you can basically you know not unlike kind of sort of you can do self checkout so to speak. You can you can use your phone. They got an app, download the app, and you can shop. But then you had to take your merchandise to the counter to check in. And it felt like you had to do that because a lot of them had security tags on it. So it's interesting where some brick-and-mortar retailers can try to do things. But as you said, the fundamental structure of department stores or retailers um, kind of gets in the way. But I, I gave them props for trying, at least. Uh, it wasn't a bad experience. But again, it wasn't the shop at like you stole it. Amazon Go experience either. So um, it'd be interesting to see how consumers react, understanding those kind of core limitations. Have you ever, have you ever tried, by the way, either the Amazon or that, that Macy's experience? I've tried the Amazon. I have not tried the Macy's experience. Um, and certainly the Amazon, I understand, but it's also a really finite number of SKUs, you know, at the end of the day Um, and such a small footprint. So I think the challenges for these large footprint retailers, and I think another interesting aspect of it is a lot of the stores, I mean, you can think of plenty of the Canadian ones as well that I know I've been in where you it has an old footprint and they're not there. It's almost like you now have to retrofit the experience to what the needs are for today, which is not that simple and kind of turning a lot of these stores around. So I think that becomes challenging as well. Um, But I think anything that people can do, it has to also be practical. So kind of like your example on the Macy's side, it's like, am I going to want to walk over and deal with it when I don't work in the industry? You know, is there something that, is it beneficial? Um, Is it an experience? I mean, another thing that I thought was interesting is how services are now being sold more. Maybe this is kind of an online offline example, but I did something on how services are being sold, like installation and home repair and, you know, more digitally being sold online or people having the option to book an appointment online and to go in store. And the number one category for that was automotive, which I thought it would probably be beauty. So, again, there's ways that I think the channels can work together that really are fairly simple um, capabilities. I don't know that it always has to be the sexy. I think sometimes it's the time savings and the efficient that are really much more powerful or, 
And even I did a target drive up one day. I decided I would test that. And, you know, my daughter wanted some of that bubbly water. And so I, mm. you know, I, they didn't have it at the one target, the city target I was at. So I did it for pickup at the other. And, you know, there comes, you know, the woman running out with my stuff. And I thought, wow, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another good segue. Let's talk about Bopus for a while. So I was struck by the, 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 a couple of things, as you say, the prominence now of it in the U.S. I think you know I saw some numbers that had increased forty percent year over year, and I, I was chatting to some folks at at the NRF show in January. I said, "Well, tell me what's behind that number? Like forty percent growth in any single year is 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 huge." And the general response, I wanted to see if you had any um, you agree or any other insights. One, the technology is better, so more retailers are adopting it. Two, grocers are adopting it, and that's going to move the needle by percentages just by their frequency and three and the third a distant third was you know the porch piracy is a bit of a thing uh in the kind of you know set of inconveniences at the doorstep and that was starting to really drive adoption of of pickup and store i'm I'm not sure i would have predicted it so strong you know 20 years ago when you launched hbc.com you helped uh, helped advise us on on launching hbc.com we said well we need to be able to do it more for returns i don't know how many people are going to show up in store why would they? Because we could send it to their door. What do you, it's an interesting historical look, but also contemporary. What are your What are your thoughts of those that growth number? What What's drive? You know, do you agree with those three things about what's driving that growth? I think what's interesting is one the you have these people where it's probably very significant among a top group of retailers again. And also what I notice, I'm in the process of looking at all the people who are doing buy online, pick up and store um, for a project. And there's so many more people doing it. I mean, in, in my day, it was maybe 10 companies, you know, there were a handful of people that were doing it. In fact, we did the first studies for circuit city and Best Buy when they were doing it. And I think what's happened is that you have companies being very aggressive about it. So a good example, and I think that's where you see the growth. So if you go to Nordstrom's, you see it heavily promoted on the site, almost homepage placement for everyone. You go into the store, like say the Chicago store, you know, there's thousands of packages waiting to be picked up. It's like a, it's like a department unto itself. Uh, and I think those types of experience and the visualization of it, and I think that they've also figured it out. And, you know, listen, no shopper ever wanted to pay for shipping. So that always has been a factor in terms of the growth. I think you're absolutely right about the grocers, but I, you know, I don't, I wonder how many people, I think the numbers are still relatively low in terms of how many people are still taking advantage of that. Um, I also think the technology is better. You know, there wasn't curbside pickup. There wasn't the ability to have mobile POS checkout and you could be in and out. And I remember standing at those counters and they couldn't find your product, that yeah, type yeah, of yeah. thing. And so all of that's, it's kind of seamless now. And, um, and I think that the smart retailers, they're also incentivizing for people to do it because they want people in the store because they know X percentage of people are going to buy more once they get there. Well, and I often, it's a great point because I often tell my clients, um, you know, in addition to all the reasons you should be doing it because customers like it, it's, it's tough these days, as you know, to drive incremental footsteps into the store. And, um, this is a good one. Get, you know, whether you're a franchise organization or, or other, if you're pulling from the store or just delivering to the store, at least you get the footsteps in the door, the door swings open, you know, you've got a chance to upsell or cross-sell, or you've just got a chance to increase traffic, and maybe that'll result in something, maybe it won't, but it's it's a tactic that feels like its day certainly has come. So it's uh, it's fascinating to watch from, you know, from, uh, again, how, how much it's evolved. I think another um, thing to mm-hmm. point that's really important here, and I noticed it in your research as well, is that the customer wants to make sure their store visit is worthwhile. Like people don't cut anyone any slack. They're not going to cut the retailer any slack. So I think there's so much more usage of the product locator and that's kind of the plumbing behind buy online, pick up and store anyway. So in the early days, much of that was not available and they kind of winged it. And then, you know, if you ever, you know, we all worked in retail, so we know there's no such thing as an accurate retail inventory. And as a result of that, they want to make sure their visits are right. So that access to is the product available at the store I want to go to 
that is to me is so critical. It's like the, you know, fundamentals and the foundation of so much other functionality. You know, this has been such a great, such a treat for me to to catch up and touch base. We'll have to do it again. I'll get you back on the show. Um, we could probably um, talk for a couple of hours, but this is such a nice, quick touch with lots of great information. Uh, tell me how, uh, if people want to reach out to you directly, how they can get a hold of you. Sure. Um, LF as in Lauren Friedman at e hyphen dot com. That's probably the best way. And your book, I just checked, is still available on, on Amazon. <laughs> so <laughs> I have my signed copy. I'm not letting go of that one. But if anyone wants uh, 2018, it's still so relevant. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. It's been uh, such a treat again to chat with you. And we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Sounds great, Michael. Always a pleasure. Andrew, welcome to The Voice of Retail. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to, uh, to sit and chat. How are you doing today? Doing great. It's nice and sunny in Vancouver. So why don't we start with a little bit about yourself, uh, your connection to retail, and, and um, what brought you out to settle in, in Vancouver and what you're doing out there now. So I am I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a competitive rower, poker player, a dog dad. I'm, a, I'm many things. I'm also a uh, a very big lover of retail. I uh, I've been in retail for most of my adult life. I started selling shoes and skates uh, when I was in high school at Collegiate Sports. If you remember mm-hmm. them, there I started on the shop floor, uh, and I have been in retail on and off ever since from many different perspectives. I've been a tech vendor selling uh, social media platforms, selling analytics technologies. I've been uh, in biz dev on the creative agency side, building websites for retailers. And uh, and my last job was at Walmart. I was the VP of customer experience and strategy for walmart.ca. So actually inside. It's interesting because you've been on uh, on both sides. I was talking with uh, Peter Housley from Indochino also on this podcast, and we were talking about tech vendors and how best to approach retailers. So it gives you a really um, uh, an invaluable perspective, right? From working, you know, a gamekeeper comes poacher or poacher becomes gamekeeper. You've been on both sides <laughs> of the, both sides of the discussion. What, what, uh, what brought you out? Uh, what brought you out to Vancouver other than the amazing rowing? I mean, I've lived in a bunch of places. I've lived in Toronto and in New York city twice. I've, uh, I've been in Dubai quite a bit working with shopping malls, but, um, but all that time I was thinking through my whole career, it'd be great to move out to Vancouver as I think many people, uh, many people think that what caused this though was, uh, my son was born last summer and my wife and I want to raise him on the West coast. And we said, let's, uh, let's do it now versus later. Let's, let's start him off on the West coast. Okay. So you pick up stakes and you move West young man. And, um, now you got to make a living. Uh, given both your connections and your 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 orientation, you probably talked to a lot of retailers. And and um, how are they how are they feeling? What's the vibe you get? I mean, as you said, you you've worked in a bunch of different places, and and I think you'd probably be pretty good at kind of assessing the the market. What's what? How are you feeling about uh, Vancouver? And how are the Vancouver retailers feeling, or at least Vancouver based retailers? Because of course we have great international retailers: uh, Lululemon, Aritzia, Indochino, yep. based in uh, Best Buy, based in Vancouver. Yeah, so those are those are the big ones. Uh, and other than those, you know, four or five uh, very large retailers, um, the only difference I'd say in the Vancouver retail scene is that uh, it's a smaller smaller city, fewer people, and smaller smaller retailers. But there's really no difference, as far as I can see, in how retail is run in the customer experience. I mean, every retailer that I know of now is, uh, or most of them, are online and they are pursuing, if not the North American market, then the global market. So there's really no difference in how retailers are run, whether they're based here or Toronto or New York City. The only difference I see is, is size. There's a lot of talent out here, a lot of ideas, and, and a lot of money. It's like a smaller version, uh, just size-wise, of, of Toronto or New York City. You know, it's fun. it's funny when you say that because it's very concentrated, right? I mentioned a few names there, but off the top, I can also think of uh, Birdie's Chocolate, London Drug, of course, great Vancouver-based uh, Western company. Lush is out there. Yep. Um, so it's really, um, you know, it's home to some great, uh, great brands. I'm probably forgetting 
half a dozen as well, including, I believe, one that you might just now be working with, Kit and Ace. Are you, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, uh, I think Kit and Ace is uh, retail's most exciting startup story. They're a, they're a startup with a history. Um, mm. Most people in Canada are familiar with the brand and quite a few Americans because uh, at one point Kit and Ace had 60 stores. They're under new ownership now. Uh, they never really found their mark with Technical Cashmere, the, the initial line that they were selling. And, uh, and the original owners sold the company uh, to a former Lululemon employee who, uh, who has taken over with a couple of other investors. And they're basically starting from, uh, from a smaller presence now. Uh, Kit and Ace has seven stores across Canada and a really smart, focused team that's building this, this much-loved brand back up with a new product line and new messaging. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it is a startup and they're scrappy and they're smart. They just happen to have a, a five-year history behind them. But, uh, how do you approach building that brand or, or working with them and, and, uh, advising them on, on what comes next? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's such an interesting story and, and thankfully as an outside consultant, um, I'm still fairly new to the kitten a story. So I still have an outsider's perspective. Very soon, I won't have that as I talk to more and mm. more people and I become part of the brand and the story. But right now, I can still speak as an outsider. Experience or CX is now a discipline. It's a recognized acronym, CX. Um, companies, retailers are hiring at the VP level for people to, um, to drive that discipline across the organization. So that's really my background from uh, from technology, a digital, um, an empathetic understanding of the customer and how to assess all of the touch points in a very strategic way and then figure out how to tell the brand story. So whether it's online, if it's in the email communications, if it's the store signage, it's the sandwich board outside, it's the way the, the, um, the associates are approaching the customer, how they're driving them to online when the questions can't be answered in the store. All those different touch points are all part of this giant ecosystem. And I think my perspective is that most retailers are considering that now, where before we still talked about different channels and there were stores and there was online. And um, thankfully, I don't see the word omni-channel anymore. It's just retail. Um, that's, that's one of the shifts that I've seen that I'm quite thankful for. Well, we heard um, Steve Dennis, who, by the way, will be at uh, RCC store in, in Toronto. He talks about, you know, the two channels being a distinction without a real difference. I think he's encapsulated what I've been trying to frame it as. And I think what you're saying as well is it's just, you know, it's just shopping. It's just retail. There's, they're different. But how do you approach talking to retailers about consolidating or integrating or disintegrating the barriers of those two um, differences, different experiences? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, from it's from a few different angles. First of all, I don't think there's any hesitation at the senior level uh, of any retailer that I've, that I've met across North America um, to accept that the customers are now very digitally engaged and digitally focused. I don't think anybody would argue that it is an omni-channel world to bring that word back into it. Um, the question is how to approach it and how to... Um, how to uh, how to assess all of the many different touch points and tie them all together. So, I if the question is how do I, um, I mean the question years ago would have been how do how do we convince executives that it should be one experience? I don't think that that's a question anymore. It's an assumption. Mm -hmm. uh, the the question is how do we approach it in a very disciplined way instead of having say a digital team that's working on a website and talking at some point to the store team how do we make sure that not just through the org structure but the the dna of the company that it's all tied in together and that's really that's the discipline of uh, of cx of customer experience it's on the typically on the vp of cx to tie it all together to to kind of be the um, if you will, the project manager across the entire company to mm -hmm. say, if I own the customer, uh, and that's always been a question, is it the CMO? Mm -hmm. is it the, 
who owns a customer? Well, it should be the the head of customer experience ultimately to say from an from an empathetic understanding of what our customers are going through, whether they're walking into our stores or or seeing us from our website or from a different digital point, what are they going through? How can we help them and how do we play a role in their lives? That's the other thing that that's my other takeaway this year from everything that I'm seeing in retail is that um, there's this acceptance that physical isn't going anywhere. I've, I thankfully don't see these head, these quick baby headlines anymore saying um, <laughs> bricks and mortar is dead. It's not mm-hmm. dead and mm-hmm. it's never died. And in fact, digitally native companies are opening stores and everyone has accepted that physical stores work. So great. That's done. We will no longer see quick baby headlines. <laughs> mm. um, and and now how do we tie it all in together? Uh, you know, and you, then, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say you've gone from evangelist to specialist in some ways, right? From, um, yeah. you know, evangelizing CX to actually owning it. But, you know, let me, t- let me ask you this question. So the, the, the question in many enterprises, who owns the customer? I, it feels some days like it's a third rail question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, you know, in a room of executives, uh, many hands would go up all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's less an issue in, in a startup, but it's a bigger issue overall. And of course you've been in, you know, you've worked in the world's largest company. So how do you deal with that third rail issue that, that ownership of the customer you're saying that it should be someone, um, charged with the customer experience. The marketers would say, well, I own it because I own the data and I, I frame the brand and the merchants would say, listen, I'm, I own the customer because I'm the one who's going out interpreting what they want to the vendors and, and vice versa. And the, and the store ops would say, well, I own the customer because they're in mm-hmm. my, you know, and on it goes. So it's an interesting question, right? And what's your experience in, in approaching that, you know, at any size of, uh, of enterprise? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's sort of like asking in a company who owns uh, responsibility for the budget or for, for smart mm-hmm. spending. Every executive should say, well, of course I do for my own budget, but ultimately it's the CFO. Um, and I, yeah, I and I really see it as no different with the, with the customer. Everybody owns a customer. Of course they do. If you're running a store, it's your responsibility for that, that touch point. If you're part of marketing, then you own the communication with the customer. But ultimately, I have no problem having one person, just like a CFO owns a budget, so does the VP of customer experience own the customer. That's totally fine as long as there's the understanding that, in fact, everybody plays a role in it. You know, listen, I, you know, I wanted to um, once again, thank you. And I wanted to how, if uh, you're in based in Vancouver, but of course, uh, you know, that doesn't mean limited to Vancouver. How can uh, how can people get a hold of you, Andrew? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I've just started my own consultancy, so I don't have a website up just yet, but uh but I do have a company, and it's Andrew at Touchpoints Retail. Touchpoints plural. Uh, touchpointsretail.com is my my uh, my email address. Andrew at touchpointsretail.com. So Great, that's, that's the best way to reach me, and I'm happy okay. to talk to any retailers about mm. customer experience and strategy and bridging digital with bricks and mortar. Um, it's it's the most exciting area in my mind of of retail right now, and I'm just thrilled to be part of it. All right. Thanks again to Andrew for chatting with me here at the Voice of Retail. Let's jump right into the top news of the week, starting where we left off last week, actually, Retail Cannabis. It's a big week in Ontario with 10 stores. My bet was five. Uh, So uh, more than my bet, but less than the 25 opening on April 1st. Seven out of 10, actually interesting. This from an article and uh, interview on BNN. Uh, Share the same POS system, Kova Software, and they tell us, Sales were 50,913, average 50,913. Kova provided the um, POS software for 7 out of 10. So that's pretty good, uh, pretty good number. And I think 867-odd uh, transactions per day. Uh, that probably average, as compared to an average uh, in established uh, retail cannabis stores, about uh, eight to $9,000 per day per store. Uh, so certainly some early exuberance in the Toronto market. Uh, and by the way, as part of my ongoing coverage of the rollout of retail cannabis, and courtesy of my friends at Enveronics Analytics Cannabis Insights, powered by Vivid Data, wanted to share some insights about the Toronto market. Um, and again, you know, we see this in, in other markets we talked about uh, yesterday, but uh, or sorry, last edition, we see vaping very popular, 28% more likely uh, in the Toronto market. And that compares 
uh, to Vancouver, and I was in Vancouver as well this week, as you as you may have figured out, um, and visited uh, the retail cannabis stores in Vancouver. I was at City Cannabis, really nice store on Robson Street, actually not uh, just up the street from the Indochino head office. Uh, Vancouverites, uh, 19% more likely uh, to be vaping, so vaping is still popular uh, amongst both, amongst both. Um, and 23% uh, in Vancouver more likely to be used as uh, as recreational versus uh, you know recreational slash non medical. So lots of great data to be had uh, from Enveronics. We'll continue to uh, Enveronics Analytics. We'll continue to look at that as the as the days and weeks uh, unfold. So anyway, yeah, kick off to retail cannabis in Ontario. It's here. It's finally here. Uh, we'll keep a close eye on it as uh, as we close in on how many stores are going to open and then keep an eye on it for the year. But uh, first, from an article on Vice, uh, and again, this taken from Retail This Week newsletter, kind of a companion piece to this uh, podcast, a uh, great article on Vice. Sorry, BC and Ontario, Alberta is new is Canada's new weed capital. It's a nice article featuring some entrepreneurs in that space. 75 uh, cannabis stores, retail cannabis stores in Alberta, and for sure, uh, they've done, of all the uh, provinces, they've done most of the things are right, uh, and it's a great base uh, for uh, for uh, retail cannabis uh, in Canada. Uh, moving on to other retail issues, Square One, uh, Oxford Properties opening up their, um, their their dynamic food court. They call their their district market, food district market, uh, at uh, Square One in uh, where was the uh, Zellers and then the Target store. Uh, so that uh, I'm going to be paying a visit to that. That's not too far from my head office. Um, other news includes uh, there's just an article here. On Calgary Real Estate Insiders, optimistic. There's a lot of retail chains leaving certain areas, but uh, and this is from CBC. Uh, but the vacant spaces is as it is in many places being turned over and picked up by uh, by other uh, retail concepts or, or food concepts or other just entertainment concepts. Uh, Hudson Bay numbers. Uh, the in the news uh, with their numbers talking about how their their price cuts went a bit too far. Uh, according to their uh, to their CEO, lots going on there. By the way, Helena Folks, their CEO, will be on the stage live at Store 2019, uh, Retail Council of Canada's uh, event in uh, in May 28-29. So be sure and check that out. Uh, IKEA is actually looking at uh, you know how do they become what they call and this is fast company plan to reinvent itself as a circular company, and they're actually looking to to rent furniture. Uh, interesting, you know. Think a couple of episodes talking to uh, Christy Weaver from Rent Frock Repeat, moving, looking at the sharing economy and the renting economy, moving her model to or pivoting her model to renting um, on a monthly basis. Packages that arrive on a monthly basis for overall uh, apparel. Uh, so we see that. And by the way, Lauren McDonald, C- CMO, IKEA Canada, live on the stage of Retail Marketing Conference, uh, and that would be on April 18th. I'll be there as well. Talk a little bit more about that next week. Um, some other stores, the, the hidden price of cashless retail. So there's an article a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago. That's an article from, um, where's that, from Fortune magazine. And, and there's an article I put in uh, a couple of weeks ago and chatted about uh, that I think it was Philadelphia had banned cashless retail. It's a really uh, interesting uh, discussion around who has access to cash and who has access to retail. And uh, we are seeing that, uh, you know, the small independent businesses are kind of shaved out and, and forced, as many are, to use Therefore, if not cash, use some uh, pretty expensive credit card um, products because uh, it eliminates the ability to take cash uh, in a competitive set. So uh, legislators taking note. A uh, great article from uh, Steve Dennis will be live at stage, live on stage at Store 29 as well. Go Big or Go Home Restoration Hardware's radical approach is paying off. So a bunch of episodes ago, I, I did uh, a tour. I talked about it in the tour of Manhattan, visited their um, their location in the Meatpacking District uh, in New York, such a such a bold move for RH Restoration Hardware, and it, it seems to be one of those moves that is uh, is turning out. Uh, in terms of uh, retail news for entrepreneurs, Canadian Independent Bookstore Bookstore Day, April twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. Uh, it is a day to support amazing independent bookstores in the communities, maintain a thriving book industry across the country. Uh, we'll be talking about that more in uh, subsequent episodes. Uh, we also talked about something, uh, uh, policy around Canada being one of the few nations that doesn't allow visitors to, to reclaim their, their VAT or their GST. Uh, we, I was in Ireland and, and, you know, you had a card, you swiped the card and uh, checking out the airport, you, you had a nice refund. Um, this uh, jeweler in, in um, Vancouver trying to help visitors, Monte Cristo Jewelers, 
looks like they got stung uh, by having to pay a GST fine or back taxes of $2.3 million. Wow, that's from Business of Vancouver. So watch out for that. I think uh, no question Retail Council of Canada will continue to work on that. Uh, articles, of course, on the uh, the Toronto stores, the Honey Pot that opened up on Queen Street, 3,500 square feet. Nice feature article in Toronto Life. Uh, Ottawa, of course, having three, actually. I think Ottawa had three. Fire and Flower being uh, one of its stores opening up. And they said more than 50000 in sales at its Byward Market locations. So that core uh, uh, triangulates to uh, the Cova software number pretty closely. Uh, so congratulations to Fire and Flower on opening up in Ottawa. Uh, let's see what else we've got. The Tepperman's, which is a, a furniture store, an original furniture store based in Windsor and London, uh, opening up with a new look. Uh, that from uh, Windsorite.ca. So be sure to check that out. Great Canadian company uh, based, as I said, in uh, in Windsor and London. And uh, let's see what else we've got. Uh, oh, yeah, Loblaws. Loblaws launched this really interesting approach. Leverage loyalty data with online advertising businesses from National Post has existed as an article in many places. Uh, but check that out because I think we'll hear more about this. They're tying PC Optimum Loyalty Program uh, members who agree to be part of an audience to get service-specific ads online that then tracks um, their purchase. So it's kind of that holy grail moment of being able to track uh, online advertising that converts into offline sales. So uh, we'll be learning more about that. That's an interesting one for sure. You used to come in in the paper uh, National Post from uh, from Loblaw. Uh, what else? We've got um, a Walmart. Walmart doubles down on voice grocery shopping with Google Home. Uh, interesting. So they're, they're, they're partnered with Google uh, and will be, uh, and this is in the States right now, but I'm sure it'll expand to Canada successful, uh, being ordered Walmart uh, groceries and products uh, via Google Home. Uh, so interesting. Uh, and speaking of which, um, if you have either a Google Home device or an Alexa, you can just say, play the Voice of Retail podcast. Uh, and thanks to my new platform, Simplecast, uh, that will come true. You will actually start playing uh, the Voice of Retail. So I was pretty excited to hear it. It's kind of fun. Uh, and uh, it's just another way to consume uh, retail, uh, the Voice of Retail podcast. All right. Well, that's a wrap on this edition of the Voice of Retail. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. This is a feature this uh, episode featured three interviews, so a little tighter on the news, and, and we'll get back uh, to a bit of a shorter format with two interviews next week. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc Company. You can learn more about me on meleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Join me again next week for a feature interview with Danielle Brown, CMO of Nix and RCC's 2019 Retail Marketing Award winner, and Jesse Michael, Managing Director of North America at Stocard, who will talk to us about their innovative mobile loyalty app focusing on increasing foot traffic to retailers in Canada. Do take note of that. Uh, we hear from many, many retailers that uh, driving traffic is a real challenge. So uh, I'm looking forward to, talk, to talking with Jesse next week and learning uh, more about that. So until then, have a great week.